This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see our show notes for numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. The son of a Presbyterian minister with multiple degrees seeking something more in life. A compassionate nurse with four children and a passion for astrology, theosophy and the occult looking for a kindred spirit. Their paths cross and they become deeply intertwined and from there a new movement is born. This is Decoding Cults and I'm your host Palsy. This episode is about Heaven's Gate, Part 1. In this episode, we are going to look at the early lives of the leaders and how their new movement came about. The reason why I'm going into a bit of detail about their early life is that for me, it's valuable information to understand where they had come from, and this way we can see why they had followed the paths that they did. Bonnie Lou Truesdale was born into a Baptist family on 29 August 1927 in Houston, Texas, and was raised within this religion. She was baptized and born again in Christ in 1938. There is not a lot of information about her early life, but we pick up where she graduated from Herman Hospital School of Professional Nursing in 1949 and started working as a registered nurse. In December 1949, She married businessman Joseph Siegel Nettles, and after suffering a miscarriage and stillborn twins, Bonnie finally gave birth to a baby girl and then had three more children. For all intents and purposes, their married life was a happy one to start with. In her early adulthood, Bonnie started to move away from her Baptist upbringing and started to study astrology, theosophy and the occult. She admitted that she was always more drawn to Eastern philosophies. In February 1966, she joined the Houston Lodge of the Theosophical Society in America. Just for interest's sake, Theosophy, or Divine Wisdom, is a religious movement that was established in the United States during 1875 by a Russian immigrant called Helena Blavatsky and two Americans named Henry Olcott and William Kwan judge. A brief summary of this movement is that it, quote, teaches that the purpose of human life is spiritual emancipation and claims that the human soul undergoes reincarnation upon bodily death according to a process of karma. It promotes values of universal brotherhood and social improvement, although it does not stipulate ethical codes, end quote. Furthermore, it only requests that its members commit to form a nucleus of the Universal Brotherhood of Humanity, 
without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Some of the theosophical teachings would play a big role in the movement that would later come to be. Bonnie Lou Nettles conducted weekly seances at her home with various mediums to try and contact deceased spirits. She also studied astrology and started doing astrological charts for people on the side. She even got to write an astrological column in the local newspaper. Her marriage started to become shaky when Nettles started to believe that a 19th century monk named Brother Francis from Greece, who had died in 1818, was not only speaking to her, but also giving her instructions on how to live her life and helping her with her chart. The 1960s was also an era in which science fiction became very popular within the American culture. Bonnie's eldest daughter Terry recalled a few evenings when she was around 14 years old, where her and her mother went outside of the house and gazed at the night sky, discussing how they would love for a spaceship to just come down and take them away. She further noted that they had felt like they never really fit in the normal world. Bonnie's husband was not very happy with her new interests, and the couple separated and eventually got divorced in 1973. At the start of 1972, Bonnie had consulted many fortune tellers, and one apparently told her that she was going to meet a tall, fair-haired, mysterious man with a fair complexion. On 17 May 1931, Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. was born in Spur, Texas, to a Presbyterian minister, Marshall Herf Applewhite Sr., and his wife Louise. He was the third of four children, with two older sisters and a younger brother. As a child, Applewhite was deeply religious with a love for music, and their family moved all over the south of Texas as his father helped build and open new churches. He had a mostly ordinary childhood, and his one sister described him as an outgoing child with a great baritone voice. Applewhite went by his second name Hoof and was tall, fair-haired with a light complexion. Hoof graduated high school in 1948, and enrolled in Austin College as a philosophy major. His classmates described him as a regular, upbeat person. During this time, he met his future wife Anna Pierce, and they married in 1952. The couple had two children together. Religion still played a major role in his life, so once he had finished college, he enrolled into the Union Theological Seminary of Virginia to study to become a Presbyterian minister. Torn between his religion and his love for music, Herf dropped out of seminary school and decided to pursue a career in music. He was drafted into the U.S. military in 1954 and served for two years in Austria and New Mexico until he was honorably discharged in 1956. Herf then enrolled at the University of Colorado, where he got his master's degree in music with a focus on musical theater. After this, the couple and their children moved to New York, as Herf wanted to become a professional singer. At this time, Herf was described as a very devoted father, and he did not get his big break in the music scene, so he decided to go and teach, as this would provide a steady income for his family. I noticed something about Herf during this time. As a child, he moved around a lot, and then in his adult life, he jumped from one thing to another, never really settling on one career path. This constant movement could be an indicator that he was constantly seeking that one thing that would satisfy him spiritually. 
this could also be the reason why he eventually followed the path that he did. Herf started teaching music at the University of Alabama. This, however, was a short-lived position, as he was dismissed when it came out that he had been pursuing a sexual relationship with a male student. What we need to understand is back then, same-sex and bisexual relationships were not as well accepted as they are now. Also, Alabama is part of the Bible Belt in America. Most Christian denominations were very much against same-sex relationships and would shun those individuals. It is here where we first encounter Herf's struggle with his sexuality. I feel like, given my previous statement and the fact that he was so deeply religious, it would have been very hard for him to consolidate his feelings with his beliefs. This would also impact some of the group's later belief systems. When his wife learned about the affair, they separated in 1965 and were divorced three years later. It's also said that after the separation, Herf had no further communication with his children. Following this, he moved to Houston in Texas and was chair of the University of St. Thomas's music department. During his tenure at the university, Herf had a few unsuccessful relationships with both men and women, including a failed engagement. The president of the university recalled that Herf was oftentimes very disorganized. It's unknown exactly when, but he started to become more interested in a new age approach to life and also started enjoying science fiction. Herf decided to resign from his post in 1970, citing that he was suffering from emotional problems including depression. There is however speculation that he was fired from his post because his fiancée, a student, attempted suicide when he broke off the engagement. He moved to New Mexico in 1971 and opened a popular delicatessen called The Sunshine Company, but returned back to Texas later that year. He also stated that during this time he had begun to have visions, one of which was that he had been chosen for a messianic role. It was also around this time that Herf's father passed away. This loss hit him hard and caused him to sink into a deep depression. There are a few counts on exactly how Bonnie and Herf met. Some say that they met when Herf checked himself into a psychiatric hospital for his so-called homosexual urges. Some state that he was teaching and one of his students had an accident. Herf then took the student to the hospital and this is where he met Bonnie. Other reports are that they met at a theater. The last report that I could find alluded to the fact that he had landed in hospital with a heart blockage and Nettles was one of the nurses taking care of him. Regardless of the circumstances, the two's paths crossed in March 1972, and, after a conversation around astrology, Herf asked Bonnie to do his chart. She had told people that when she had done his chart, she realized that the two of them had a very important job that they needed to do together. They also believed that they had known each other in a previous life. Bonnie and Herf formed a very close platonic friendship based around their joint interests, some of which included astrology, reincarnation, and UFOs. They described it as a spiritual connection. I think that given what I have read and heard, they basically fulfilled something in the other without needing the intimacy. My further opinion on this platonic friendship is that Herf was struggling with his sexual identity. Having someone in his life without those kind of expectations may have been just what he was searching for. 
One of her sisters was uncomfortable with the relationship and didn't trust Bonnie at all. She tried to get her brother to read Bible verses that contradicted his new beliefs, but he wasn't interested. In the interview with his sister around her trying to get her away from Bonnie, she said, quote, I have no idea of anything that any of us could have done to stop it, end quote. Bonnie and Herf opened a bookstore together in Houston. Although it was called Christian Art Center, they sold books on New Age philosophies like theosophy, astrology, and metaphysics. This, however, didn't seem to satisfy the friends, and they closed up shop and opened a small retreat called No Place, which they described as a little utopia where one can find oneself. No Place, spelled K-N-O-W, was a homonym that basically represented their thirst for knowledge and also the knowingness of the place. They taught classes on mysticism and theosophy, and devoured as much information about mysticism and other ideas that they could get their hands on. At one point, they had a session with a Filipino occultist who had an interest in Hindu mysticism. He said that they had a special path to follow together and renamed them. Bonnie was named Shakti Devi, which means powerful goddess, and Herf was named Sri Pardava, which loosely translates to auspicious mantra. The actual names didn't stick, but the idea of having other names did. Seemingly still unsatisfied, the pair set off on a year-long road trip on New Year's Day in 1973 to find their own belief system. Before they left, Herf went to his sister to inform her that he would no longer have any contact with his family. Bonnie left her younger children with their father. Her eldest, Terry, was already 19 and self-sufficient at the time. And when Bonnie went to go tell her that she was leaving on a trip, she wasn't happy about it. She stated later in an interview that, quote, I wasn't allowed to say goodbye. I wasn't allowed to tell her that I loved her and hold her hand. I felt like her prevented that from happening, end quote. This would be the last time that Terry would physically see her mother. Even though they were supposed to cut ties with everyone in their lives, it would turn out that Bonnie did write letters to Terry over the years. It is said that during this seeking trip, they studied everything that they could get their hands on around awareness, but also indulged in some science fiction reading. They funded their travels by doing odd jobs and even donating blood. They would also often camp instead of staying at a motel to save money. In July 1973, while camping next to a river in Oregon, they finally realized their dream and found their own belief system and path. It is here where Herf's Christian background, along with Bonnie's theosophical interests and their shared interest in mysticism, awareness, astrology, and science fiction finally came to a head. On 26 July 1973, Bonnie had written a letter to her daughter Terry in which she stated, quote, We have finally come out of the wilderness and know what our mission is. It's a big one. In fact, we have been sent to fulfill the scriptures the same as Jesus and others came to do. This has been revealed in John's revelations. I'm not kidding, baby. This is for real. I knew it was something very important from the beginning. End quote. Revelations 11 verses 3 to 13 states, quote, I will send my two witnesses dressed in sackcloth, and they will proclaim God's message during those 1,260 days. The two witnesses 
are the two olive trees and the two lamps that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and destroys their enemies. In this way, whoever tries to harm them will be killed. They have authority to shut up the sky so that there will be no rain during the time that they proclaim God's message. They have authority also over the springs of water to turn them into blood. They have authority to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they finish proclaiming their message, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will fight against them. He will defeat them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, where their Lord was crucified. The symbolic name of that city is Sodom, or Egypt. People from all nations, tribes, languages, and races will look at their bodies for three and a half days and will not allow them to be buried. The people of the earth will be happy because of the death of these two. They will celebrate and send presents to each other because those two prophets brought much suffering upon the earth. After three and a half days, a life-giving breath came from God and entered them, and they stood up, and all who saw them were terrified. Then the two prophets heard a loud voice say to them from heaven, Come up here. As the enemies watched, they went up into heaven in a cloud, and at that very moment there was a violent earthquake. A tenth of the city was destroyed, and seven thousand people were killed. The rest of the people were terrified and praised the greatness of God in heaven. The reason why I read this to you is because it would become the foundation of their early beliefs, with their own twist on it. Bonnie and Herf proclaimed that they were the two witnesses from the book of Revelations, and from then on, refer to themselves as the two. They stated that they had come to show humans how to achieve eternal life. They claimed that they were chosen by the next level to be messengers on earth, and had chosen their current bodies to use as camouflage while spreading their message. They proclaimed that they, like the two witnesses in Revelations, would be ridiculed for this and may even be killed for their beliefs. They further stated that they would lie in the street for three and a half days before rising again in a cloud, or spaceship. But when the spaceship came to pick them up, only those select individuals who had decided to forgo all of their earthly connections and follow the two would be able to go along with them on the ship. They would then be taken into outer space to a heavenly utopia. This place is the true kingdom of God, the evolutionary level above human. And here, through biological and chemical processes, they would be transformed into extraterrestrial beings and live indefinitely. They would then finally be free from all the negativity on this planet which was controlled by Satan. As you've noticed, they obviously used the two's ascension from the Bible and then added their own sci-fi spin by stating it would be done with a spaceship. They also incorporated some theosophical themes when they speak about the evolved beings and having extra long lifespans. It would also incorporate living a life of physical purity, remaining chaste, abstinent and indifferent to physical luxury. Here we can see the makings of a cult leader, or in this case leaders, where they place themselves above the followers as objects to be worshipped, as they were the divine beings through which their followers could gain eternal life albeit on another planet. The two, as they now refer to themselves, set out to gain followers to bring their new belief system to. 
they first approached a lady called Sharon Morgan in May 1974. Sharon was a real estate agent and had been a customer of theirs both at the bookstore and at no place. They gave her a breakdown of their new beliefs and asked if she would follow them. Sharon took some time to think it over and after six days she decided that this is what she wanted to do. She left everything behind, left her husband and two children, one of which was a two-year-old daughter and even her wedding ring, and joined the two. Together they travelled throughout the USA spreading the message. Sharon would travel ahead of the two and announce their coming. Money was tight and the two would often skip out on bills. This made Sharon very uncomfortable. When she would confront them on this, they would merely quote Thessalonians 2 chapter 5 verse 2. Quote, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief that comes in the night. End quote. At one point, they entered the offices of an anthropologist and asked him to leave his life behind and join them to await the coming of the spaceship. He had said that when he heard their message, he first thought that they were crazy, but when he looked into Herf's eyes, he could only see seriousness there, but he didn't end up following them. As a matter of fact, during these first few months, the two didn't gain any followers at all. After four months on the road, Sharon started to regret leaving her family behind, especially her little girl, and following a few conversations with her husband, she decided to leave the two and go back to her family. In a later statement to a reporter, she did however admit that she was worried that she had disappointed God and had forgone her place on the UFO by returning to her family. Despite having lost their only follower, the two continued to travel across the country in an attempt to respread their message and gain followers. They also believed that as the two witnesses, they had a higher calling and could ignore earthly laws, but that would come to bite them in the butt. Herf and Bonnie were arrested in Harlingen, Texas for charges of credit card fraud. Sharon's husband had laid these charges because they had used the card while Sharon was still a follower. These charges were eventually dropped, but an outstanding warrant was found on her for failing to return a rental car. He was extradited to St. Louis, Missouri, tried and jailed for six months for this offence. While Herf was incarcerated, Bonnie went back to nursing. During his incarceration, Herf started to ponder his belief. At first, it was almost as if he had realized that it was the end of the road for his newfound beliefs, and he even went as far as updating his CV for a potential new job. But the longer he stayed, the firmer he became in his beliefs, and even started expanding on them. He started to move away from occultism and mysticism, and move towards a more science fiction-like and evolution-type outlook. He started writing down a statement for their beliefs. He had concluded that he and Bonnie were in fact not human, but extraterrestrials, inhabiting human bodies. They were sent down to help people evolve into better beings. Herf was released in March of 1975, and upon his release, Bonnie immediately joined him again. Once reunited, the two started to edit the statement until they were satisfied that it encompassed their new belief system. The statement said the following, quote, what religions have sought to understand since the beginning of the origin is what is above the human level of existence. Most have been taught that if an individual lives a good life, 
adoring some saviour that he would inherit some heaven after his death. If only it were that simple. That viewpoint is as inaccurate as the caterpillar believing that if he dies a good caterpillar, he will mysteriously awaken in a rose blossom and live there forever with the king butterfly. He must become a butterfly while a healthy caterpillar, overcoming his decaying option. If he rises above all caterpillar ways, converts all his energies to the pursuit of becoming literally another creature who circulates in another world, he becomes a butterfly. Likewise, a human who seeks to become a member of his next evolutionary kingdom may become a member of that kingdom if he completely overcomes all of the aspects and influences of the human level, providing he has found favor with a member of that next level who will direct him through his metamorphosis. As the caterpillar, the human can complete this changeover only before his death as a human. A member of this next kingdom finds favor with one who is willing to endure all of the necessary growing pains of weaning himself totally from his human condition. Members of that next kingdom are no more confined to human limitations than butterflies to caterpillar limitations, nor do they, in like comparison, concern themselves with human-type indulgences or concerns. However, if the human is thought of as the lava of that next kingdom, then there are, at times, those who are approaching the completion of the individual metamorphosis and are beginning to have some of the attributes and characteristics of the next kingdom. When the metamorphosis is complete, their perennial and cyclic nature is ended for the new body has overcome decay, disease and death. It has converted over chemically, biologically and in vibration to the new creature. Approximately 2,000 years ago, an individual of that kingdom forfeited his body of that kingdom and entered a human female's womb, thereby incarnating as the one history refers to as Jesus of Nazareth. He awakened to this fact gradually through the same metamorphic process and came to know that he had incarnated for the express purpose of telling and showing, even to the point of proof, that the next kingdom can be entered by overcoming human aspects and literally converting into a man or creature of that next kingdom, the kingdom of his father, one who is already a member of that kingdom. By his resurrection, he proved that death can literally be overcome, and that a permanent body for the next kingdom is acquired from the human kingdom. He did not leave his body in the grave. He converted it into his body of that next kingdom. This is the only way the next kingdom is entered into permanently. Each human that has full potential, Jesus's Christing or christening, was completed at his transfiguration or metamorphic completion. And he remained the lava environment with other humans for some 40 days to show that his teaching had been accomplished. He showed them his new body and demonstrated a few of its new attributes, i.e. appearing and disappearing, or changing his vibrations, before their eyes, while letting some of his friend touch his new body. This could be compared to a butterfly remaining in the caterpillar world for a few days, to show them what they had to look forward to if they choose to seek true conscious communication with a butterfly, and were willing to overcome all of their caterpillar ways. Then Jesus left them in a cloud of light what humans refer to as UFOs, and moved and returned in the same manner. There are two individuals here now who have also come from that next kingdom, incarnate as humans, awakened, and will soon demonstrate the same proof of overcoming death. 
They are sent from the kingdom by the Father to bear the same truth as was Jesus's. This is like a repeat performance, except the sum by two, a man and a woman. To restate the truth Jesus bore, to restore its accurate meaning, and again to show that any individual who seeks that kingdom will find it through the same process. This restatement or demonstration will happen within months. The two are the actors in this theatre, and are meantime doing all they can to relate the truth as accurately as possible, so when their bodies recover from their dead state, or resurrection, and they leave in UFOs, those left behind will clearly have understood the formula. Those who can believe this process and do it will be lifted up individually and saved from death, literally. If you seek those two while they are here, they will gladly fill you in on the details and assist those who wish to follow this path. If this speaks to you, respond according to your capabilities or needs, for your sake, give this opportunity your best. End quote. To put it in layman terms, they start off by stating that the notion of needing to die to go to heaven is incorrect. You merely have to forego all of your earthly bonds and transform yourself to be able to get into heaven with your current body. They then go on to state that Jesus was in fact from that next kingdom and had come to show people the way, and that his father still resides within that kingdom. Jesus had undergone this transformation while on earth, and that is why he was able to go to heaven while still alive. Lastly, they state that they had now come to earth to teach us that same transformation, and by following their instruction, we too can get to heaven without having to die. The two then proceeded to post their writings to those people who they thought would believe and appreciate this new system. This included New Age followers and some churches. It was decided that Herf would be the spokesperson for the two, as he had a theatrical background, and was very charismatic and persuasive. Before I carry on with the story of the two, I would just like to chat to you a bit about the hippie era, as this is important to the mindset of the followers who were to come. This era started in the early 1960s, where young people started to break away from the norm. They broke free from their rigid lives to pursue a life of peace intertwined with sex, drugs and rock and roll. The men grew out their hair, the hippies wore patched clothing, and some started living communally out in nature. Many of the youths were seeking more. They yearned for more meaning in their life and experimented with many different religions and movements. Although the hippie era had almost faded by 1970, there were still those individuals that were seeking that something that would make sense in their lives. I'd also like to touch on the growth of science fiction during these times. Star Trek was a sci-fi television series that started in 1966 and gained a huge following. As a matter of fact, it's still popular today. More and more people not only started to believe in life on other planets, but a few people even reported having UFO sightings themselves. On 9 April 1975, the two held their first meeting with potential believers in Los Angeles. They had introduced themselves as Guinea, Herf, and Pig, Bonnie, stating that they had come down to Earth to conduct an experiment, and they were like the guinea pigs of this experiment. They further stated that they were there to bring the attendees an important message. The message in a nutshell was that the world was going to come to an end soon and that they were there to assist those who chose to believe in them to get to the next level. If the people were willing to give up everything, detach themselves from human desires and follow them, they would live a clean life free from the world's trappings. 
Upon doing this, they would be able to be taken to their version of heaven on a spaceship. People who attended that meeting described the two as charismatic and exuding love. The venue host went as far as describing Herf's eyes as hypnotic. Following this meeting, of the 80 or so people that had attended, either 23, 24 or 27, depending on the source, decided to follow the two. This new group was to be known as Human Individual Metamorphosis, or HIM, H-I-M. For the rest of the year, Guinea and Pig, or as they also called themselves, Bo and Peep, held meetings in various places to get more followers. They advertised these meetings in magazines and on small satellite TV channels. For the most part, they would not attend their meetings themselves, but had their followers give a short message and then collect the contact information of those who showed interest. They would then call these interested parties, and within days, those people would just up and leave their lives and follow the two. There were reports that the new followers vanished so completely that not even private investigators hired by worried families were able to find them. They even made the news when people disappeared in Newport, Oregon, and the New York Times published an article on 7 October 1975 stating, quote, The authorities here are investigating the disappearance of about 20 persons who apparently believe that they could ascend to superhuman level, possibly in a spaceship. Those who disappeared are said to have given away all their property to friends and relatives and renounced their families after attending meetings conducted by a man and a woman in Waldport, a coastal community south of here, in Eugene Park last month. End quote. The two split their followers in pairs. These partners had to make sure that they monitored one another and keep each other on the right path. The pairs were to completely cut off contact with anyone outside of the group and live a clean life. They went a step further and paired followers according to their sexual orientation. People who were attracted to the opposite sex were paired male-female and those who were attracted to the same sex were paired male-male or female-female. This was done to apparently help them get over their bodily urges. These pairs were then tasked to go out and proselytize the two's message. On occasion, Bowen Peep would actually attend the meetings themselves and deliver their message to potential followers. When one of the audience members would question the fact that God or the two witnesses did not in fact get taken away by a spaceship, they would argue that the concept of a spaceship was not around in those times, and it was likely that the cloud described in the Bible could very well have been a UFO, but it was not called that because it wasn't in their vocabulary at the time and many people would accept this argument. Although this seems incredulous, we need to remember the state of mind of the audience member and the surrounding culture at the time. I need to point out that not all of the members were lost seekers. Some of the recruits had very respectful careers, one of which was a Colorado Republican who was in the process of running for the Colorado House of Representatives. A former member of the movement said in an article, quote, Many of these people weren't losers with low self-esteem. Applewhite's message connected with some belief in them, end quote. Those who gave up their so-called human lives also gave all of their money to the movement. This provided the two with a steady income. Here we can see references to two of the reasons that cult leaders start their movement, namely money and power. By getting the followers to drop everything and follow them, 
The cult leader has a greater hold over the follower and the entire life, and it's easier to manipulate them. They also gain income by having the followers give or donate their money to the movement. By the end of 1975, the two had over 200 followers. With this huge increase in followers, cracks started to show within the movement. There were no defined directives, and as the followers basically moved around on their own whims, there was no order to the group. This led to many of the followers straying from the path and eventually leaving the group. The two realized that if they wanted their movement to succeed, they would need to change their tactics. Next week, we will look at the further development of the cult, the impact it had on the followers' families, the away team, and the effect that it had on those who were left behind. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button on the app that you are listening on, and please rate and review. It'll help in improving our show. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.